0: Today's reading is from Psalms chapters 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. My name is Mike. I'm a pastor on staff here at Christ Community. And just right off the bat, i got to say something. I am so excited for this new series we're starting today. I have been counting down the minutes until we get to dive into this new series. Now, I realize as a pastor, that's a lot like saying I have a favorite child. And you're not supposed to do that, but whatever. I can't help it. I'm just really excited about what we're diving into today because it's about something that we all do. We either do this at times when we're angry because something is unfair, or when we're sad because something has broken our hearts. We do this at times when we are overwhelmed by beauty like a sunset, and at times when we are lost in indecision. Some of us do this every single day or maybe before a meal. Some of us haven't done this in years, but at one time or another, we all pray. At one time or another, we all pray. We are very fascinated with this topic as a society, actually. And one of the members of our teaching team went on to Amazon.com to see if uh, he could prove this. And so he typed in the word prayer in Amazon.com. And what he got back, what he got back was 115,000 titles for his perusal, 115,000, just by typing the word prayer into Amazon. And to give you a little context, there's only a few less titles than the word diet got back. We are fascinated with this topic of prayer. But if you're anything like me, you probably have a lot of questions swirling around in your head when it comes to prayer. What exactly is prayer supposed to look like? How am I supposed to do it? Should I have my hands folded? With my head down? Should I be on my knees or standing? Should I be facing a certain direction? What's the result of prayer? What's going to happen because I'm praying? Or sometimes in the hardest moments of our lives, we simply look up and ask the question, "Are you listening?" Are you listening to whoever might be out there? That's what we've titled our series, Are You Listening? Now, I have wrestled with these questions about prayer for a long time. I grew up in a Christian home, and so I always knew that prayer was supposed to be a part of my life, but I never knew anything more than that. It's like changing the oil in my car. I know it's supposed to happen all the time, but I have no idea how to actually do it. I'm as likely to actually take the whole engine out as I am to change the oil if I were to try. I mean, I just have no clarity around what prayer is supposed to look like. And I think there's like kind of three categories of prayer that happen often, at least in my own life. Sometimes prayer can be like Google Maps. It's like, um, Siri, I have no idea where I am, but I know I'm not supposed to be here. Get me out. Or it could be like maybe paying dues at a gym. Because let's face it, who wants to go to the gym? But what will it say about us if we cancel our membership? Or praying can be like, wishing upon a star. And it makes no difference who you are, but anything your heart desires will come to you. Really, this last category is the one that describes my prayer life going up. It was all about requests. I would come before the Lord and I'd pray over my circumstances, my family's circumstances, my church's circumstances, and so on and so forth. And if I said it just right, and if I had just the right amount of faith, those circumstances would go exactly how I wanted them to go. But as my prayer life ebbed and flowed over the years, I found myself constantly stepping back and saying, "Is is this really what prayer is? Is it just me coming with my grocery list to God and hoping upon hope that I get it all? Prayer is confusing. To sum it all up, prayer is confusing. But the good news is that despite how much trouble we have with understanding prayer and understanding what it's supposed to be and doing it regularly, we have not been left without instruction In fact this book called Psalms which we're going to be spending some time in over the next few weeks is the largest compilation of prayers we have in our faith history It's 150 psalms gathered over the course of many hundreds of years across a variety of authors The most prolific author a lot of us know is King David the second king of Israel we're going to be hearing a lot from him in this series But today we're going to start a 7 week journey through the book of Psalms We're going to take a step back and take a deep breath and we're going to sit and listen to what the Psalms have to say about prayer. Because all these questions we ask about how prayer is supposed to happen and what it's supposed to do and who, if anyone, is listening will be answered for us when we spend some time just listening at the feet of the psalmist. And today, we're going to start where we should start, which is Psalms 1 and 2. So if you have a print Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and go over to Psalm 1. Um, and we're going to be spending some time there today. And on your way over there, I'd love to tell you a little bit about Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 and 2 are unique. They're the only two psalms out of 150 that aren't actually prayers. Instead, they're more like the front gate that allows us into this vast pasture that is the psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 paint a very clear picture for us of two types of people. It's really the two types of people. And um, for us to understand how to pray rightly as we consider this topic the first step, the most foundational step, is for us to understand the difference, the distinction between these two people. So that's what we're going to look at today. And in Psalm 1 and 2, we're going to see that there is an action that describes each person and then a picture that's painted for us to illustrate each person. So that's what we're going to see today. And let's start that journey looking at the first person in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now notice there's this poetic progression in those first three verbs, right? We have walking, standing, and then sitting. These three verbs, they progress towards permanence. The blessed person knows that sin is enticing, that even to walk by sin, so to speak, puts this person in danger of having their heart grabbed and pulled in. You see, walking soon enough will become lingering, and then before you know it, you've got a reserved seat at the table. But none of these three actions are what defines the blessed person. Instead, in verse 2, the action that defines the blessed person is meditation on the law of the Lord. It's meditation. And that can sound really weird to us. Because the tradition I grew up in, the Christian tradition I grew up in, the word meditation was synonymous for devil worship. And that's actually not a joke. So what's happening here? Is, the, is this person sitting, this blessed person, sitting with their legs crossed in a dark room with incense burning for hours a day? Well, that's a cultural picture we have. But to understand what's happening in this text, we need to understand what this word meditate means way back when it was first written. It's a very illustrative word. It carries the picture of a cow chewing its cud, just very physically, over and over again, chewing on the words of Scripture, forming the words on our lips and in our mouths, speaking them, chewing on them, digesting them, day and night, day and night, day and night. Now, in our 140 character limit, 30-second soundbite culture, our approach to Scripture tends to be a much more hasty thing. It's really more about, can I find ten minutes in the morning to read the Open Here passage and check it off the list for the day? But as I was reading recently in a book written by a guy named Thomas Brooks, I found this quote that was just so corrective in that regard. Thomas Brooks is a Puritan author, so he lived in the early 17th century, but even then he had an insight into the danger of hasty reading in Scripture. Listen to what he says. It is not hasty reading but serious meditating on, upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will provide the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. So the action that defines this first person, this blessed person, is that they meditate day and night, chew on, digest the word of God, and they find their delight there. And to help us understand this person, the psalmist, the psalmist gives us a picture to describe him. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 3. He, the blessed one, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Its leaf does not wither. Now, the, the, the vividness of this picture can be lost on us a little bit because we see trees all the time. Even if we live right here downtown, we see trees popping up everywhere. It's really not that big of a deal to see a tree. But in a climate like Israel's, this picture is almost breathtaking. Breathtaking. A lot of us know this, but Israel's climate is uh, irregular at best in its reception of water. And to irrigate the land, the people have had, at this time, dug a bunch of little trenches that were called wadis. And these trenches would allow, when rain did fall, uh, for it to spread out across the land and water their crops and irrigate their crops. Now, most of the time, these trenches were either empty or just a small trickle of water that really couldn't, really couldn't water anything. And so their crops would provide a really unpredictable amount and type of fruit, and very often they would see their plants shrivel up and die in the heat of the sun. Okay, now in that framework, imagine this picture. On the banks of of an incessant flowing river, a tree, a tall and beautiful and green tree with deep and complex roots. And because it is connected to its source of life in the river, It constantly produces fruit. And whether the wind blows or the sun beats down, its leaf does not wither. This is the picture of the one who meditates on the word of the Lord, who is connected to, is saturated on, saturated with, rather, the the word of the Lord. They grow up into this amazing tree. Now, a quick word on the significance of the fact that it's a tree that's used here, and then we'll move on. A bush can, can... sprout up into its fullness in a season or a weed in a day, it seems like, right? But a tree, a tree takes a lifetime to grow to its fullness. And if it remains connected to its source of life, it really can keep growing kind of forever, right? I mean, it can always grow more. It can always produce more fruit. The person who engages the process of meditating on Scripture, engages a, not a fast, quick, high growth, something that maybe you can't see in a week or a month, but over a decade, the growth is unmistakable. It's a slow, cumulative process that grows this tree. The best way I can describe it is it's not an instant cup of coffee, it's not a microwave dinner, but it's the days-long smoking of a brisket. That's what we want, right? This is the slow, cumulative process of the one who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night, day and night, to bring about this lifetime of growth. And that's the picture of the first person. Now to the picture of the second person. Let's go back to the text. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's a very similar action that actually defines this second person, but with a totally different goal in mind. Do you see in verse 1 that word plot? Why do the peoples plot in vain? In the original language, that's actually the same exact word used for meditate back in chapter 1, verse 2. So a more direct reading of this passage would be, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate in vain? So we ought to ask ourselves, what is it about this meditation that makes it vanity instead of the key to pursuing God? And verse 3 gives us the answer. You see, it's not not meditating on the the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, to find delight, but to throw it off, to be rid of it, to burst the cords, as the text says. Author Eugene Peterson uh, has a great way of describing the difference between the first two people. In Psalm 1 and 2, he says this, But while Psalm 1 directs us to approach this word with delight, receiving it as life-giving, Psalm 2 shows people plotting against this word, devising schemes for getting rid of it so that they can be free of all God interference in their lives. These people see God's word not as javelins penetrating their lives with truth, but as chains that restrict their freedom. They put their minds together to rid themselves of this word so that their words can rule. So that their words can rule. To borrow a phrase that we've seen twice already, this is the council of the wicked. The council of the wicked sees God's word, God's law, not as the path to freedom and flourishing, but as the oppressive chains that hold us back from getting there. So the, the goal of the second person as they meditate on God's word, is to find ways together to throw it off, to throw off the rule that restricts the way that they can live their lives. They want to be free. And ironically, Christians historically have been on the forefront arguing for the fact that individuals have inherent freedoms Good things we ought to be defending. We believe that every individual is created in the image of God, which means that they have inherent value, not instrumental value, not based on what they contribute, but inherent value. And we ought to defend that. That's a good thing. The problem comes when humans, with all their created value, step over the line and begin to see their own order, their own design, their own law as better than the Creator's. If you were to see me in an Apple store this week arguing with an Apple store employee um, because I think my iPhone should only function to keep my paper from blowing away on a windy day, you would think I was an idiot. And you'd be right to think that. And we would be right to think the same thought for those who think they know better what to do with creation than the creator. And yet this goes on all around us and if we're honest within us. Kind of at an alarming rate, doesn't it? To use another phrase from this text, the kings of this world, the people come together and they plot the slow and subtle undermining of God's word, of God's law, of God's good design. It comes out in these cultural narratives that we hear all the time, very subtly. Things like, there's no such thing as an absolute moral truth. Or the purpose of a society is not to place boundaries, but to remove boundaries so that every individual can be whatever they want to be. Or your true identity, who you really are, is, is inside you, and no external voice ought to have a say. As innocuous as these things might seem, they subtly and slowly undermine God's good design for this world. And in so doing, they propagate they, they create, they sustain some of the worst tragedies in this world. Things like abortion, war, the destruction of the family. These are all founded on these cultural narratives. On the attempt to throw off God's good word. This is the counsel of the wicked. The action that describes the second person in our passage today is the attempt to throw off God's rule, to throw off God's word, his design for our lives. And there's a picture for that one too. Look with me. That's Psalm 1, verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now this is another picture that might be a little bit lost on us, although we do have some farmland around us, so we might be a little bit closer to this one. Uh, When wheat is harvested, uh, the head of the wheat plant comes off with a shell on it. And, of course, now we have machines to separate between the two, but obviously Israel did not have that then. So what they would do is, uh, in a big kind of vat, they would have stones that they would use to beat the heads of the the grain plant to break off the shells. And then in this kind of big vat, they would have a mixture of the good, useful, sellable wheat and then the the, uh, uh, shells of the head, which is the chaff. And so how they would get rid of this chaff, is take this bowl and they would toss the mixture up into the air. And because the shell of the wheat plant is so much lighter than the actual wheat, the wind would blow it away. And then the wheat, the good stuff, the useful stuff, would fall back down into the bowl. This is the picture of the wicked who seek to throw off God's good design. They are blown away by the slightest breeze. Now think about the difference between these two pictures. I mean, they could not be more opposite. One is this this amazing, this tall, this growing, this vibrant tree that is beautiful and it's productive and it's connected to its source of life. And it's almost immovable. If you have ever had to take a tree out, roots and all, you know how difficult it is to move that thing. The other picture is of this chaff, this useless, dead, dry dust that the slightest breeze just blows into oblivion these are the two types of people and just so we don't miss how the lord regards this second person he gets a little bit more explicit he gets a little bit more explicit about this second person and here is what he says in psalm chapter 2 verse 4 listen to this language he who sits in the heavens laughs not because their evil is funny but because of how feeble and ridiculous are their attempts to throw off his rule. This is his creation, and they want to take his place. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify him in his fury. Notice the language. It's so strong. Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now here's the king that he is placed in Zion, speaking back. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And here we go. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The language is clear. Those who seek to throw off the good design and created order that God has put in place will be broken and dashed in the end, however much they might appear to be succeeding now. Because if we're honest, sometimes it looks like the counsel of the wicked is winning. But in the end, broken and dashed are the words that describe them. Psalm 1, verses 5 through 6 give us a good summary of the ends that await these two people. Verse 5, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the one who because he or she has meditated on the word of the Lord day and night and found delight in the God they have met there. This person is known by God. And this person will stand in the judgment, because the, the roots go deep and they're connected to their water of life. But the other, the one whose attempt is to throw off God's rule in their lives, this one will perish in the end. So given the fact that these two ends await these two types of people, chapters one and two close with a warning, starting in verse in chapter two, verse ten. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Here it is. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And then listen to this. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Here's the warning. Serve Jesus, who is the king God has placed on his holy hill. Turn away from the vain meditation on how to throw off God's design, God's rule, God's authority, and serve Jesus. In him, you will be able to stand in the judgment. But those who resist him, those who will not submit to his rule, but insist on on placing themselves in the seat of the ruler, in the end they will perish. That's the message of Psalm 1 and 2. So, what does that have to do with prayer? Did we just trick you guys into listening to a message all about judgment? Yes, yes we did. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that at all. Look, Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 1 and 2 tell us a very important truth. Before we can ever get to the how or the what of prayer, we need to take a step back and we need to understand what Psalm 1 and 2 tell us, which is this. What you listen to determines what you say. What you listen to determines what you say. If we are going to learn how to pray, to do prayer rightly, before we even get to what we say, we have to consider what we listen to because what we listen to determines what we say. And we know this kind of on a broad level. How do infants learn how to say their first words? Isn't it by hearing those words spoken over and over and over again? And then when that cute little innocent mouth utters a certain type of word, what do the parents say? Where did he learn that? Where did she learn that? They didn't make up that word on their own. They heard it because what you listen to determines what you say. And that's not just true for infants learning how to speak, but it's true for us spiritually who are young and learning how to speak in prayer. What we listen to determines what we say. So the question follows, what will you listen to? What will you listen to? What will be the thing that you will hear that will teach you how to pray? Or to put it in the language of Psalm 1 and 2, what will you meditate on? What will be the thing you will allow to saturate your mind and form you? Will it be the word of the Lord and all of the delight that it offers? Or will it be the counsel of the wicked, the attempt to put yourself in God's place and rule in your own life? Now, we can be really quick to answer that question, but let's just think about it for a second. Am I saying that we can never go like watch an episode of The Office or listen to music that isn't explicitly Christian ever again? No, of course I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we need to consider over the course of a month or a year what is the primary thing we saturate our minds with? What are we constantly thinking about? Where are we constantly going for input into our minds? What will we allow our minds to meditate on? Because there is a great lie in our time. And it goes something like this. We are simply a victim of or a product of the feelings we have inside of us or the thoughts we have inside of our heads. The reality is the greatest freedom we have been endowed with that can never be taken away from us is the freedom to choose what we will allow or prevent our minds to meditate on. Let me say that again. The greatest freedom we have been given that can never be taken away from us is the freedom to choose what we will allow or prevent our minds to meditate on. So what will you allow or prevent your mind to meditate on? What will you listen to? Because what you listen to determines what you say. And I'm going to get real practical for a second and then we'll wrap this thing up. Let's say you've listened to Psalm 1 and 2 and all of this, and you've decided, I want to be the first person. I want to be marked by meditation on the word of the Lord so as to find delight in it. I want to be the tree. So what's the way forward? Well, as we go forward in this series, next week, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 3. Now, don't worry, we're not going to go through every single one of the 150 psalms. We're just going to hit the highlights. But Psalm 3 is the next one up that we're going to go to next week. Psalm 3 shows us more about the posture of the person who prays well. And so... Let me offer you this challenge. If meditating on the word of the Lord is what you want to define you, then this week I want to encourage you every day, 7 days, find time to read and think about, meditate on and reread and digest Psalm 3. It could be 10 minutes, it could be 30 minutes, it could be whatever, but just in a place where you don't have other things competing for your attention, you don't have other voices speaking to you, you're not yourself speaking, just just sit and listen and read. Just just meditate on the word of the Lord. In a couple weeks, we're going to give you some more concrete handles on what a time of meditation could look like. But for now, just listen. Just be watered by that which brings us life. That's my challenge for you. And let me close with this. The more that we meditate on the law of the Lord, honestly meditate on the law of the Lord, the more we realize that we fall woefully short. And the more we meditate, the more we realize just how far short we have fallen. We realize that as the winds of circumstance and the the heat of the sun bear down on us, we are far too easily blown around to consider ourselves trees. But take heart. Because God has planted his king in Zion. And the nations raged against him and the peoples plotted against him, and the kings came together against him, and he died on that hill. And do you know what he was saying when he died? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies quoting the Psalms. He dies saying what he has lived his life listening to. He dies in prayer. And because he came alive again, And because his death has worked forgiveness for our sins, because he lived the perfect life that can be attributed to us, he has become the tree of life for all. He is the only one who can stand in the judgment. But if you will, as Psalm 2 warns, serve him, if you will turn from the vain meditation on how to institute your own rule, your own words in your lives and follow him, you too can stand in the judgment. On his merit, not on yours. Jesus is the tree planted along streams of living water. Will you turn and follow him? Because when you do, and only when you do, you can begin to pray. Now, in the, in the vein of letting the Psalms inform our prayer, I'd like to close the sermon today by praying Psalm 1 and 2 over us. So let's go now to the Lord in prayer. our Father in heaven, make us to be this righteous, this blessed one that we may share in your blessing and protection. And have mercy upon us, Father, that even with such an invitation before us, we still play the wicked person. We are so easily deceived and we so easily deceive ourselves into thinking that some other way than yours will somehow bear sweet fruit Instead of bitter disappointment. And when we play the wicked person, Father, and begin to doubt the sincerity of your invitations to us, and the certainty of your promises to bless us, would you, in those seasons of doubt, graciously remind us that Jesus Christ alone has been righteous on our behalf? Remind us that, not in ourselves, but in Him, He will most surely, we will most surely flourish in life and at death, we will most surely stand in the judgment. This we pray in the name of Jesus, who is our only hope in life and death. Amen.